It's fucking hot out there. <sighs> Hello and welcome back to episode 27 of Double Reel. This is the second reel of our monthly magazine-style podcast for film nerds. Hopefully you've caught up with the first reel, had a brief intermission, and refueled ready to take on this mighty second instalment of Nerdy Film Chat. If you haven't caught the first reel yet, please do go back to your app and download and listen to it so you're up to date with all the features we've covered already this month. These include our roundup of news and spotlight on some of the films we watched this month, our classic and recommended feature Paprika, our hidden gem Existence, the one that got away about Vincenzo Natale's Neuromancer, and our remake Hate Watch of A Nightmare on Elm Street. Now in Reel 2, we bring you our big conversation, where we tackle a weighty topic and give it a fuller, i.e. longer, discussion. First, a very warm, extremely warm welcome back to my co-host, James Adamson. Hello! (laughs) That was was a surprisingly lively response, given their wilting and uh, Britain's hottest (laughs) day of all time. It's all down here from her, like, it's it's done. We're all, it's just going to be a melting... Yeah, hot. Uh, I'm gonna I'm gonna look like Ditto from Pokemon at the end of this. Yeah, yeah, we're just gonna sit. You might hear the dripping of us sweating onto our tables. You might hear fans going in the background. You might hear I don't know, like the the Earth's core starting to like combust underneath us. Well, it's very we've hot got today. Two fans, and they're both in the living room for the dog. Obviously, um, one's one that you plug in, and then one's a handheld clip thing. So we just clipped it to his crate last night. We went to bed. at yeah did we go to sleep at like midnight woke up yeah. at eight and the fan the clip-on fan that was battery powered had ran out of batteries within oh. eight hours oh. so La- that's a really expensive fucking commodity last night we stuck a we had, had a fan in the bedroom and then a big bowl of ice cubes in front of the fan in the hope that it would blow some cold air around the room did it work no <laughs> don't do it like that get a get a peg and get a wet tissue this is advice for everyone listening. Get a tissue and put like cold ice water in it. Maybe not a tissue, but like a flannel, and then it'll it'll like blow the. Uh, you call it the flannel from the top. Clip it to the top, and the cold air should blow that way. Ah, uh, see, you get you you don't just get good film chat from us. You get tips on keeping cool in this un- well it, ex- exceedingly hot heat. Except if you're Baz Luhrmann, then I hope you die in this heat. <laughs> That's extremely harsh. I mean, he's from Australia, so he's not gonna die. I'm but. sure. I'm sure he can cope with this heat. Um, not my heat though. <laughs> <laughs> so our big, our big conversation topic this month is mind, mind bending filmmakers, altered reality, dreams, uh, filmmakers and films that use dreams or merge dreams and reality into one. Um, it's been sort of the topic of everything we've done this month. You know, Paprika and Nightmare on Elm Street and Neuromancer and, and Existence are all films in that vein. But we thought we'd dig into to films that kind of go into that. It's a bit of a distinction between this and sort of other films in that, you know, many filmmakers, you know, blur the line between reality and uh, and and unreality. They every filmmaker is kind of creating a reality for you to watch with everything they put in the shot, the atmosphere they put in everything, what they show you, what you don't. Um, it's just a question of how much they make or leave unclear, so you have to interpret for yourself what's going on. For example, Kubrick's two thousand and one and Christopher Nolan's Interstellar. They're not specifically about altered reality themselves, but they do use aspects of that to kind of, and we might go into Interstellar sort of at times on this on this uh, pod. Uh, they do go into that in, in, in ways to try and disorient and make you think what's really going on here. So I think probably I, I would say you would, 
you would probably have Inception as your kind of favourite film in this vein, wouldn't you, James? I mean, it is my one of my favourite films, at least. But yeah, it's a real mind-bender. Well, actually, no, it's not a mind-bender. That's what pisses me off about this film. People say, oh, I didn't understand Inception at all. It was too confusing. It's out of all the mind-bending films that you could pick for this topic, Inception, I think, is the easiest to follow. It's a case of you're trying to... you can You can participate in other people's dreams it's this sci-fi film where you can do that and the idea is that you're planting an idea in someone's brain through their dreams and then you can have different layers of dreams that's it yeah. that is that is literally the film and everyone's like i didn't understand it so why why do they all have to die at the same time what, what's going on yeah yeah it's it's, fucking it's, it's it's a very it's a very lucid film it's about lucid dreaming yeah. because apart from the subject all the other kind of, you know, the, the invaders, the dream heisters, as it were, they are all aware that they're in a dream. They're all aware that what they're doing is is working within a dream. And you contrast that with um, Paprika, which, you know, shares a bit of DNA with Inception, but that's all. That does a very, very different thing where it is much more disorienting and, and unclear what's going on. Um, uh, you know, similarly, existence and, and, and things like that. The, the It's a very, very different thing. With one exception... Uh, and and the, the exception on that is that underlying it is this final question mark of um, does does Leonardo DiCaprio is he dreaming or is he not? There's a question yeah. mark over whether the whole thing is a dream or not. Now, f- first things first, I think everyone will have a different interpretation at the end because uh, you know d- don't want to give away the plot of the whole film. But there is a bit at the very end where people are w- watching the spinning top, which is the thing you use to indicate whether it's a dream or not. So everyone has one. Um, at the end, the, the the spinning top is spinning. Is it wobbling? And maybe people have a different interpretation of whether they think you know he's dreaming at the end or not. From your point of view, does it matter in that film? No. Well, yes and no. I think the ending matters because it just shows how talented he is. Uh, that Christopher Nolan is and John Jonathan Nolan, I suppose. Um, those two men are creating the ending that they did because you think oh is it a dream or is it not or did you need to pay attention to something else in the film so you need to go back and watch it because there's obviously the theory that it's the spinning top or was it actually his wedding ring when he's dreaming he he's wearing his wedding ring when he's not dreaming he's not wearing his wedding ring so that's the whole thing about this film you've got you think oh it's this thing but it actually might be another thing and that's a really talented i think it's the best ending to any film ever it's a I wouldn't say it's like a cliffhanger, but it's like one of those ones where you just have to decide. It's yeah. like, okay, yeah, he might be in a dream. He might not be in a dream, but it doesn't matter because you got to see his kids' faces in the end. It doesn't matter to Leonardo DiCaprio. To the audience, I think it matters. I can't remember the character's yeah, name. Yeah. Is it Hob? Is it Hob? Uh, Cobb. Cobb, yeah. So it doesn't matter to him because he gets to see his kids' faces. He'll happily be in the dream world with his kids. Um, but for us it's like oh fuck is did he you know did he pull off the heist did it work or is he just dreaming um yeah and that and that's the thing i mean the, the you could ask yourself the question has he been dreaming this whole time or is he just dreaming at the end of seeing his kids i mean it's i think it's yeah. Chris, christopher nolan's quite interesting in that way because he's actually in most of his films there's something very very clear that's going on and he if you if you pay attention his film will tell you what's going on, except for some one bit or another that he'll say. Now, but this bit, this bit, I'm keeping behind the curtain. This bit, I'm going to totally mystify you with. But the main bit, even Tenet, which I think is you know not one of your favourite Nolan films, it was and reality and messy. It was shy. It was nothing to do with reality. It was shy. 
But in, ter- but in terms of what's going on, it's it's actually if you read through what there is a definite explanation for what's going on. Memento is an incredibly disorienting film, but it's actually very clear what's going on. I think from from yeah. this from this point on, let, let's just say there's probably going to be spoilers on this. We try hard to avoid spoilers, but some of the films we want to discuss, I think it's going to be very difficult to avoid spoilers. There are very few new films, if any new films on here. So there are going to be spoilers today. So, so pay attention to that. Memento, Memento is basically uh, each scene, it's not backwards. It's not like backwards, like certain like David Lynch scenes are played backwards, and that just completely blows your mind. It's each, each scene is plays out forwards, plays out, man goes in, talks to this woman, talks to that person, something happens, something happens. But all the scenes are out of sequence. The scenes are actually played last scene, first scene last and last scene first, right? Or which which way around is that? It it's it it's it it it, it, yeah. it, go, it, go, it goes back it goes backwards in his memory. And it's it's extremely disorienting, but it's actually very clear what's happened. He's got no short term memory and and as the film progresses you go, oh I see what's happened. He's actually the one who killed his wife. He's the one he's talking about in his story. He didn't mean to do it. He's going through it, trying to find find things out. And he's just, every five minutes, his memory resets. And it's kind of, you could probably play the same story with the, with the, with the you know, with scene one at the start in, instead of at the end. And it would tell you the same thing. It's what Christopher Nolan does. He, he likes to disorient you. But what's actually going on is reasonably clear. That's not always the case with all films, is it? I mean, in City of Lost Children, which we did last month, which we won't go over again, it's really not clear what's going on, is it? It's like, is this a dream? Is this all a dream? Um, because they're trying to do something very different with it. I mean, from from your point of view, you've got like Inception, you've got Interstellar. There's an interesting piece of Interstellar that we touched on before in that there was going to be a very kind of literal piece to uh, Interstellar when he gets through to the other side of the um, uh, of the the black hole, that would it would it would be that the that the humans from the from the future and fifth dimensional space essentially have managed to you know because space folds over they've been able to leave behind artifacts and technology and things for Matthew McConaughey to use to kind of get back yeah. and there's a time loop that says because the fifth dimensional people did it it's always there because Matthew McConaughey did it. That's why the people, that, you know, humans in the future exist and we're able to send it back. And apart from that time loop, I mean, that's no different from the Terminator, really. In the Terminator, there's a time loop created by the fact that, you know, John Connor sends Reese back in time to save his mother and make him born. And then when in the future, he has, knows he has to send Carl Reese back to do it, right? What what Christopher Nolan did with his brother's script is say, that's too, too obvious. We're going to make this less obvious. And I think that's probably the... It's the theme here is that it's how obvious is the filmmaker making it to you what's going on or how completely obscure is it that the filmmaker is making it to, to, to what's going on? And I think I think you agree with um, Nolan's choice on Interstellar to do that at the end, don't you? Um, yeah, I don't think the whole, and it was aliens, or it was, oh, the people from the future did it and you get to see this utopian world because that just didn't work for me. The ending to Interstellar is really confusing and it took me a few times... Or like a couple of watches and a good few thinks about it, a good kind of think tanks yeah. about how to decipher that kind of thing. But I think that's the kind of whole point of it. Yeah. He, spoiler, he does go into the black hole. He's he's meant to have died in the black hole, but doesn't, and is able to communicate using gravity across the universe to help save Earth through his daughter. Um, 
So, yeah. It, but other than that, it doesn't explain why he doesn't die. But I still think that kind of ending of what the fuck is going on here is better than... And he goes through the big wormhole. It's a portal to this utopian world where everyone's, you know, living their best life. Because that just seems a bit cliched, you know what I mean? He's greeted at the gates by these, like, shiny, like, future people and all that kind of pish. No, that ending worked better. The whole point of it is that it's a journey into the unknown. I mean, that's that's why Nolan is, is, is in similar territory to 2001 by Kubrick, although it's a very different style of film. I mean, there's a lot more emotion and kind of... You know, the, the video with Matthew McConaughey's watching his, his kids grow up on video is one of the you know, hugely emotional kind of writing. Yeah, it's one of the best scenes ever made. Yeah. yeah. But there's still the same thing. It's just like, this is a huge journey into the unknown. You've got no idea what you're going to see when you get to the other side of that. Um, the, the the crew of the of the um, uh, the spaceship in 2001, Discovery, they've got no idea what they're going to find when they get to the other end. Yeah? Um, no. And the... The, when Matthew McConaughey goes through that black hole he's got no idea what he's going to find all the stuff that we're talking about is based on the theoretical physics of Kit Thorne right? but the idea is, is that humans have learned, worked out this much and on the basis of what we worked out we're going to propel ourselves to the other side of the galaxy if we can to save ourselves, discover what we need to discover and all of those things so what you find out there has to be weird you know what I mean? it has to be beyond our understanding because that's the whole point right? Yeah, I mean, the entire point of the film is that they're trying to collect the information to save the the planet, and it's information that we simply don't know. Um, so that's why that ending works better. But I do also understand why that would be considered mind bending, and that that is, you know, the point. Yeah, I mean, filmmakers make sort of mind bending films with uh, with, with different intent. I mean, Fellini's eight and a half. He's not typically a person who makes that kind of movie, but an eight and a half. What he's doing is just a very, very impressionistic um, uh, view of a filmmaker who's struggling to make his next film. And it's almost like watching a nervous breakdown. And I think that's a very common use of it in a film where you go, actually, you don't necessarily know what's going on, but you can kind of explain it all away by saying, well, the guy's, this is a guy losing his mind, or this is a guy struggling with something, and this is a, um, an attempt by the director to express that. It's very similar to what Charlie Kaufman did with adaptation, and we'll probably come to Charlie Kaufman later. Uh, you know, Altered States is another one. Fight Club is one which is pretty straightforward what's going on. You know, Tyler Durden is, again, sorry for the spoilers, everyone. Tyler Durden is basically Ed Norton's alter ego because he's had he's suffering from a split personality and he doesn't realise till the end. And if you go back over the film, it's kind of, it kind of stacks up. So it's actually, so long as you kind of go, well, that's who it is. While that's kind of quite disorienting and mind-bending and there's some strange stuff going on in Fight Club, at the end, it all kind of, it all kind of makes sense, doesn't it? Yeah. It, it, yeah, it's not... It, you, you're you wondering the entire film what's going on, but the ending is clear. It's that um, Edward Norton's character... I can I can never remember the names of the characters from these films that he's, we watch. Well, the thing is, Edward's, Edward Norton's character is never given a name, although he's generally referred to as the narrator or Jack. And, right. And Jack is because he finds those leaflets, doesn't he? I am Jack's... You know, okay. Does, I am Jack's so, diseased colon, but he doesn't anyway, really have a name. His name is but, Tyler Durden. But yeah, so and turns out he's been imagining all this stuff. He's been doing it all himself. There's no help from Tyler Durden at all. But it's really easy to follow. It's like a, it's not difficult at all. 
So what do you think of something like Donnie Darko, where it's actually not very easy to follow at all what's going on, and kind of there's a lot of explanations needed afterwards? How do you feel about that generally in a film? Um, I didn't really like Donnie Darko, so... I'm not too fussed by it. I found it quite creepy more than confusing. Um, but, yeah, I don't like films that don't bother to make at least some explanation. I know this one, this is a completely different um, example, but when I went to see that Spencer film, it was Christian Stewart, it was terrible. And basically it was just, the reason they gave for how mental the whole story was that it was a fable based on true stories. And they basically just made Diana... Um, see the ghost of Anne Boleyn and starting eating, started eating her pearls in front of the Queen. It was that kind of, you know, mental, they, they just seem to think, oh, well, we're going to make her, we're going to justify this because we're going to say it's a fable. No explanation, no actual trying to create a story. What I will say about Donnie Darko is that it, at least it's trying to create a story that, you know, Donnie Darko's mind is obviously a little bit fucked because he's seeing Frank the rabbit. But you still have to have a little bit of a think about it. And I don't think that film does enough to kind of explain or justify why it did the things it did. It did, but that's just me because I'm not a big fan of that film. Yeah, I mean, th- there's a there's a flip side to that, and maybe as we go through, we can find. I'd like to find an example of a film where, you know, it's actually if you if you don't mind the kind of the the, the lack of an explanation or the the lack of clarity, you can still enjoy the film because the film is so well made. I mean, I've got a couple of examples of those. It's, I mean, it's, I guess it's a question of your opinion, but the flip side to that is something like Shutter Island, where at the end there is a very, very, very clear explanation for absolutely everything you've watched. However weird and disorienting it was while the film was on, at the end you go, oh, it was that. Yeah. And there's a, I think there's a, there's a divine element there, because I think you and I are similar on Shutter Island in that it's probably a good film to watch once. I don't think it's a great rewatch, because once you know what's going on, it's like, oh, okay, well, fine, that's it. Hmm. It's it's kind of one shot and you're done. And it's Martin Scorsese and he's very good at making films. And it's very clever that, you know, for example, every there's two sets of reality going on and it's either water or fire is in each kind of like side to the, t- the, the two realities that you're showing. And at the end, again, spoilers, it fully explains that the whole thing has been set up to sort of explore Leonardo DiCaprio's character Delusion um, that he's a detective, you know, investigating a crime, when in fact the crime that they're investigating is a crime he committed because he's a mental patient and he lost his mind and killed his family, and uh, and they're trying to get that out of him. And all everyone's been playing a role to kind of make him, uh, kind of explore that and get to the truth because he's so mentally shut down that they can't do it without creating that kind of delusion world around him. And at the end, you go, oh well, that was very clever. Now, sometimes you can watch films like that and you watch it again and you go, oh, I'm really enjoying it. I see it now. I see it now. Like Usual Suspects, different thing because it's, like it's not an altered reality film. But when you get to the end of Usual Suspects, you go, oh, fucking hell, that's who Kaiser Soze is. You, I've been yeah. able to watch Usual Suspects a number of times, enjoying it, even though I know the ending because of the way that it's made. Shutter Island really is kind of, that's your lot. So it's like a case of, is there a case that you say, if you explain too much and it's too obvious, a film can be just like one and done? Um, and there's there's some sort of sweet spot in the middle, like, say, Inception, where you say, actually, 
there's a, there's parts of this that aren't clear, parts of this that aren't understood. You'll go with that because you're enjoying the rest of the film. Yeah. What, what, what would be the line for you? I mean, how much, I have no idea what's going on, are you prepared to tolerate in a movie? Um, I, th- I just think, I hate when people just, you know, glorify directors for being those directors without having an actual sense of a plot. If that makes sense, like I hate that. Who's that guy who did um, three billboards outside Ebbing, Missouri? Martin McDonough. Yeah, he did that Seven Psychopaths, and that was utter shit. It was it was incoherent dialogue where they basically just said really offensive things that weren't actually funny. Like I'm all for dark humor, but it was basically just offensive things for the sake of it that weren't, mm-hmm. in my opinion, related to what they were meant to be saying. It was just three three men saying grossly offensive things for an entire two hours and I walked out of that film, it was that bad. Um, I'm, trying to, I'm trying to think of a film now that you put me on the spot that makes me think, yeah, there's no point to that, there's no sense. It was just rubbish. I mean, um, have, you, have, you watched much, uh, have you watched much David Lynch, for example? No. What about what about Darren Aronofsky? Like something like uh, Black Swan? Yes, for example, Black, Black Swan. Swan was shit. Black Swan was rubbish because it was just kind of like, oh, she's a ballet dancer, okay. Oh, and she's now a lesbian. No, she's not a lesbian. She's losing her mind. Is she a lesbian? Is she not? Is she actually good at dancing? Is she a bad... You know, like that kind of shit? That that film of shit. Darren Aronofsky's that prime example of that director who gets wanked off to the end of the earth because he makes films that are like about, you know, some might consider interesting topics that have no coherent plot, but because he's chosen to do a film about fucking heroin junkies, they think, oh, wow, yeah, wow, what a challenge... What a, what a challenging director he is, you know what I mean? Like, what... Or what a brave director, I should say, sorry. Um, yeah, I mean, I I wasn't as keen on Black Swan. Um, I don't think I, I would sort of uh, reacted quite as strongly to it as you did. I just wasn't keen on it because I just felt he was completely repeating himself after The Wrestler. I really liked The Wrestler. Um, and he, I felt like the whole, the whole storyline in which, again, spoilers, Natalie Portman imagines the whole of Mila Kunis' character. And it's clear that there's some sort of um, uh, you know, mental health issue has led to her. It's, you know, I don't want to, I don't want to trivialize or offend by um, getting it wrong, but it's somewhere between you know schizophrenia or psychosis or, or a hallucination, which has made someone who is essentially suffering under the pressure of, you know, how hard it is to kind of make it in ballet and her own kind of breakdown. She's imagined something there and a lot of what's going on, it's part of that self-destruction. And then the final scene where she kind of carries on going even though she's hurt is exactly the same ending as The Wrestler. And it felt like it was just a tacked on bit of kind of trippy hallucinogenic stuff on top of the same storyline. And it's just um, Natalie Portman instead of Mickey Rourke. Um, We will come back to Darinovsky because I do have an example of a Darinovsky film that I really, really like. Um, But... um, for example, what did you think of being John Malkovich? Um, I found it quite fun. You know, what I mean, like not like funny and like a funny film, but I just found it like the idea of just John Malkovich playing John Malkovich. I didn't find it, you know, ridiculous. You know, and I, I, I'm not explaining myself very well, but I kind of I could compare it to like the the recent Nick Cage from the massive weight of unbearable talent. Yeah. Um. Probably not as funny, I guess. Yeah. Although maybe for some people, but it was just kind of like you just take that film for what it is. Yeah. Someone had an idea, they went with it, and they stuck to it. Spike Jones is good for sticking to 
Spike Jones did being John Malkovich. I'm making that up. He directed it. Charlie Kaufman wrote it. That's it. In, 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 it's interesting because Charlie Kaufman gets a lot of the credit for writing that story. Spike Jones gets a lot of the credit for doing probably the best versions of any of Charlie Kaufman's films. Apart, well, a lot, some of them anyway. And then Spike Jones has, has gone and done his own thing, and Charlie Kaufman's gone and done his own thing, and they've never been as good without each other. Um, so the thing with being John Malkovich is the idea is is that there's a strange kind of middle floor in, a, in an office building, and if you go through it, you you enter the mind of John Malkovich, and then you walk around being John Malkovich for a period, and then you're ejected out into like a, next to a road in New Jersey somewhere. But it's such an intense experience that John Cusack's character wants to keep doing it. And there are times when he walks into a room and John Cusack is every single person in the room, every woman, every waiter, every every whoever. And then at the end, he manages to find a way to continue to be John, uh, John Malkovich for the rest of his life. And obviously, none of what you're watching is literally true. Do you know what I mean? That's the distinction yeah. between this and then sort of sci-fi films. Like, for example, the distinction in this and, like, say, Nightmare on Elm Street. Nightmare on Elm Street is... Imagine if when you're having a nightmare and you die in your dreams, it happens for real. It's a very simple premise and it's been used as a premise for a horror movie and that's absolutely fine. In something like Being John Malkovich, it's a case of this is a really weird thing and it's kind of it's the, the writer's way of going, what is it about being obsessed with celebrities? What is it about being a celebrity? What is it about wanting to have the life of a celebrity that fascinates more, you know, the nature of fame and the nature of kind of being famous it's like let's just look at this from a totally odd angle and it's for me i think being dramatic of it works it works because it's got it's got a basic internal logic that this is a thing that happens in the film it's a mad weird silly thing that is no so, you know sometimes you watch a film and go and they try and explain the science of it do you know what i mean this is why the zombies came back to life or whatever this is like we're not even going to explain this this is just some weird shit and it's kind yeah. of like it's I also think being John Malkovich is kind of, there's probably several different ways to interpret it and you might have different view of what it's about. But it's just, they basically say, look, we're going to follow this kind of narrative arc of a weird, weird thing happening. Go with it or don't go with it, you know? Right. Okay. And, I mean, let, let's take Charlie Kaufman for a second because he's done he's done this a couple of times. Have you seen Adaptation? No. Nick Cage is, in my humble opinion, Nick Cage's best performance. Really? Yeah, really, really tremendous. And what it's about, it, it sort of bears some similarities to Fellini's Eight and a Half in a sense. It's an absolutely brilliantly written film. It's Charlie Kaufman, I think, he won various awards for, for the screenplay. Certainly a BAFTA, maybe only nominated for an Oscar. And Spike Jones directing again. And what it is, is that this is about the real-life incident where... Charlie Kaufman has, has signed up to adapt a film called The Orchid Thief, which is a memoir by a real woman, Susan Orleans, about these her experiences with this particularly rare flower, going down to a, like a, a remote part of the US to try and find it, the people she meets down there and all of this stuff. And it's this really popular book. It's kind of like the bridges of Madison County, where it's like this, this novel becomes really celebrated and someone wants to make a movie out of it. And Charlie Kaufman sits down to write this book about it's a, and it's it's a woman's kind of memoir, so it doesn't automatically lend itself to a screenplay. It's not like a novel where some stuff happens and then there's a climax and then an ending. It's like, that, but there's a great storyline in here that he wants to make a film out. And he can't do it. He's totally blocked. He's struggling, wrestling with writer's block. He cannot adapt this film at all. 
And adaptation is he is him writing about the experience of not being able to adapt that film. And Susan Orleans becomes a character in the story, played by Meryl Streep. Charlie Kaufman is a character in the story, played by Nicolas Cage, right? And I'm not going to spoil this because you haven't seen it. I want you to enjoy it for yourself. So Charlie Kaufman, for the purposes of telling the story, he invents a, an, an identical twin brother. Right. <laughs> um, who who gets credit on the screenplay. So the, the BAFTA, this is the first time a BAFTA has been won by a fictional character. So Charlie Kaufman's got an imaginary twin brother who's played by Nicolas Cage, and the real Charlie Kaufman is played by Nicolas Cage in this movie. And the Charlie Kaufman who's wrestling with this and is full of all those neuroses, I, why can't I write the script on Totally Blocks and everything else? His brother is a much more simple, straightforward character who writes blockbuster scripts and is doing really well for himself. And that's really frustrating for Charlie Kaufman. And it's kind of an expression of there's this part of himself that he kind of wishes he was, or this side of him, so I'll just write a story that goes this, there, you know, here, there, and everywhere. And I'm trying to write this thing that really means something to me and I can't do it. And the story comes to life. He meets the character the the character that he's trying to write about the woman he's her story becomes real he gets involved in it he goes down there he gets mixed up in the story and the whole thing's fictional but it's it's essentially about writer's block and it was his way of writing an interesting story about his inability to write and by doing that he created a story and he, he created a, a film story it's got a beginning a middle and end in it. but at the, at the end of it you're going hold on why is this you know um why, why has he got? A, why has he got an imaginary twin brother who's actually real in the story? And it's an absolutely genius, genius, genius film. It's absolutely superb. And Nicolas Cage has never been better because he plays two twins really beautifully. And it's so funny because this whole stuff about you know you get these writers' conferences, these writers' kind of um, seminars about how to write the three act structure, how to take everything and boil it down to the elements of what works in a movie. And there's a criticism of that that says what you get if you do that is just very, very conventional Hollywood films. Charlie Kaufman's trying to do something different to that. But because he can't write it his way, he falls back on the three-act structure and it, it, it turns into an action through at the end the way his imaginary twin brother would have written it. It's brilliant. Brian Cox plays the writing seminar guy and he's amazing as well. And it's just like, it's such a strange idea, but actually, if you accept the strange shit, the story works. It, it, it stacks up as a story so long as you accept the completely invented elements to it do you know what i mean yeah i think that's i think that's something you can apply to a lot of mind-bending films that you've got sometimes you've got to stop being so analytical of it Mm -hmm. if that makes sense yeah you've got you've got to accept what it is and eternal sunshine of a spotless mind is perhaps a lot more straightforward because internal sunshine was of a, of, a, of a spotless mind, which is, I think, the best film that Charlie Kaufman's written. That's directed by Michel Gondry, another director who was never nearly as good without Charlie Kaufman. Have you seen Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind? Is that that's the one with Jim Carrey, isn't it? Yeah, Jim Carrey and yeah. Kate Winslet. Kate Winslet. I think yeah, I watched that a while ago, but it wasn't really for me. I think I turned it off, or it was one of those ones I put on late at night after work and didn't really have the attention span to watch it. You see, but by um, Charlie Kaufman's standards, that's actually a much more straightforward story because what it is is a if you take if you take the narrative, a, 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 a man and a woman meet, they have, fall in love, they have a relationship. The relationship comes to probably a natural end, but they're so heartbroken, they're so it's a bad breakup. They're so gutted by the breakup because they're so in love and now now they're they're not together. The um, 
the woman, played by Kate Winslet, goes to a, this is the sci-fi element of the story, there's a, there's a place you can go to, like in Total Recall, it's the opposite of Total Recall, where you can have a relationship wiped from your memory. The memories of the relationship are so painful, you can just have it wiped from your memory and you go back to the start. You won't even remember the person. And Jim Carrey is so devastated by this to say, God, I know we broke up and I know we're all gutted by it, but the idea that you would... And neither of them were bad to each other. This isn't one of these stories where one person was abusive or a horrible person or anything like that. They're just, they, they, they were so heartbroken about breaking up that Kate Winslet reacted to it. Like, you know, Jim Carrey wants to wallow in the memories. Kate Winslet wants to wipe the memories. So she goes and has her memory wiped. Jim Carrey is so gutted by this revelation that his ex is going to do that. It's like, well, I know we broke up, but God, I can't believe you want to forget me altogether. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. And in a kind of active, well, fuck you, if you're doing that, I'll do that. He has his memory wiped as well. But what happens is they still find themselves drawn to each other. He finds himself going to places that he went to when they were together, right? He finds himself on a train journey where they eventually, where they, you know, where they met each other and uh, that sort of history is repeating itself. Now, you could say this is about what it's like to have a breakup. You can say what it's like to, for history repeats itself over and over. And people have a pattern in their relationship, stuff like that. Or you can just say, just accept the sci-fi premise and it's about wiping your memory, right? And then what they do is, is that they don't play the storyline out in that order. The first thing you have is, is Jim Carrey's on the train journey. He's on the train and he doesn't know why he's on the train. And he seems to recognize Kate Winslet. He doesn't understand why. And it kind of played the the it then kind of plays it back. So it, it tells the story from the angle of Jim Carrey, his memory starting to come back, basically piecing together stuff that's been wiped from his memory. And it's very disorienting. But actually, if you lay it out, the story's very clear. It's very, 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 very clear what's happened. But what it does is that it says, well, let's tell this from the story. The interesting bit is make the audience think, okay, imagine, make you feel like you're the one who's lost your memory and it's starting to come back to you and piecing it together. And you need some patience, yeah? But if you do, that's such an excellent experience to actually go, rather than just go, oh, this happened and that happened. It's not nearly, it doesn't have as nearly as much of a punch if you know exactly what's going on. Do you know what I mean? It's actually far more effective and affects the audience, I think, much more if they're going, like they're sitting on the train, they're in the shoes of the, of the main actor going, why do I re- seem to remember this? Why does this, you know, why is this not right? Why is this, this coming back to me? Beautiful piece of work. Wonderful, wonderful, wonderful. One of the best films of the 2000s. Well, yeah, it's good if you can, sorry, if you can have a film that has a complicated or kind of confusing idea, but you display it clearly. Yeah. That's the most talent, that's like the sign of a really talented director when you can, you know, have a, a plot that's quite difficult to follow. Um, and then by the end of it, you're like, okay, I understand that. Wow, that's good. Like that's that's the problem I had with Shutter Island. Yeah, because Shutter Island was trying to do something about is Leonardo DiCaprio crazy? Is he not? And by the end of it, I just didn't give a fuck. Yeah, that's what. What, what about what if you don't understand it all at the end? I, I, can you can you live with that? Have you you know can you if if a film is actually it's compelling and interesting, but you can't. Re- it's not telling you entirely what's going on. You can't entirely follow what's going on. It's maybe leading you a little bit down the garden path. It's not completely telling you what you know what it's about. It's disorienting. People are saying things that don't make sense. Stuff is happening which they're not going to explain loud and they might explain later. What if you get to the end of a film and not everything is explained? 
I don't think there's a right or wrong answer to this question, but can you live with that? Can you accept a film that does that? Or, or do you feel like you're being cheated by a film that doesn't explain what's um, going on? I think if it's a film that's trying to be super, super, you know, higher plane, you know, only five people that, out of the hundreds of millions that watch it actually understand it, then I think you can go and fuck yourself. I think it's, I think it's, you've, the director's got a bit of a, like, I've got a bit of a duty to kind of make sure that the film is coherent and don't just say, oh, well, obviously you didn't understand it then. That's, or that, that, that's how other people would argue, like, say people didn't understand Inception and I was going about saying, well, I understood it. Clearly you're not intelligent enough to understand it. I feel like you've got an obligation to, if you want to have a complicated idea, to make sure that everyone understands it. And if you, or not everyone, but like it is understandable, maybe on, like after a second viewing. And, Unless the point of like say the like if one bit of it like the ending is meant to be confusing that's fine but if the entire film's just an incoherent you know mess then you've not really done your job you've just thought oh that that scene will work oh I like that scene oh that that's a that's a nice kind of you know still that's really good effects or whatever and you've just gone fuck it let's throw it all together and it's just complete it's just completely messy um, so I think then, no I don't think you get away with it sorry so yeah I mean I think I mean I, I think in a sense that then. While you stylistically, it sounds like Darren Aronofsky's not for you. His his debut film, uh, Pie, is I think is a very good example of when someone has uh, actually explained what's going on. You get to the end, you go, "Oh, I see what's going on," and there was all sorts of weird shit happening towards the end of it. And when you get to when you get to the end of the film, it it, it does actually explain to you what's going on. It's essentially you've been watching someone's breakdown. But it's incredibly compelling while you're watching it. What what Pi is about is it's about a a man who is a, an extremely gifted mathematician, and he has been able to design. I think today we'd call them algorithms, yeah. But in the '90s when this film came out, I don't think they were called that. Essentially, it was a mathematical formula that could uh, that could recognize patterns. Someone's got an interest in in, in his theories uh, because they think it can track the stock market. He's more interested in it for other reasons, but the, the tracking or, or understanding trends in the stock market is actually what would fund his research and actually gives a kind of a through line or a driver to to his research. But he starts to get deeper and deeper into what this is, and there's um, he you know he meets a Jewish man who is actually a practitioner of, of of Kabbalah, and one of the things about Kabbalah is that it's essentially while it's a religion, it actually says that everything can be explained by numerical sequences, like Fibonacci sequences and all these other things. Now, that's a great premise for a movie, right? Everything can be explained by this number. Do you know what I mean? This code, this numerical experience, numerical sequence explains what's going on. Okay, that's a movie already, right? The second thing about it is it's 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 fascinating for a mathematician to go, hey, maybe I've tapped into something because this number that I've got that I can't make sense of, it actually matches something in here so people other people have been wrestling with this i've got the key i've got the key to this number but he gets more and more kind of uh built into it there's like things like ants start crawling in and out of his um his computer that he's using to do this is he imagining that is he imagining all the conversations that he's having is he having some kind of breakdown it's probably a much more indie sort of impressionistic version of something like a beautiful mind where the actual pressure that he's putting on himself combined with some mental health issue of his own have made him crack and because he's cracked everything starts to not make sense and he starts going going down roads that don't make sense. And at the end, you kind of think, wow, is, what's he doing? Is, he, is that hole in his head? What's he doing? Is he self-harming? What's going on? And at the end, when he's 
you know, when he when he's uh, he's a lot more at peace, but he doesn't remember the number anymore. It's like it's almost like he is going to damage himself if he carries on going down this road. Now, actually, Pi is one of those ones where it's actually quite clear what's going on, but you have to have the patience to go through the end of it. Yeah, from you know through various scenes that don't make a lot of sense. But I would say something like David Lynch is very different. I don't think you've watched a lot of David Lynch, have you? No. So. Mulholland Drive is probably David Lynch's last great, great film. It's seen as one of the best films of the 21st century. He hasn't made a film for like about 15 years now, and people kind of think he's retired. And Mulholland Drive is seen as this absolute, frankly, masterpiece. And it's it's very well acted. It's amazingly shot. Cinematography is like awards worthy. It's absolutely amazingly done. It's it's like a It's like a thriller, and it does grip you. What David Lynch has essentially done with this film is he's actually said, right, this is what's going on. Or he, re- I know what's going on. This is the story. I'm not going to explain it to you. I'm not going to, I'm not going to play the scenes out to you in an order that, that, that is kind of sensible because this is actually, I'm doing this from the point of view of someone who is having, a, you know, again, it's, it's, it's sort of like a mental kind of damage one. And I, I think it's a, it's, a, it's a different angle on something like Shutter Island, but without the clear explanation at the end. And I think what you get with Mulholland Drive is that you get to the end of the film and you realise that Naomi Watts' character has imagined a lot of what's going on. She's imagined uh, meeting a woman who's lost her memory when in fact that's a woman that she was in love with who had a relationship with and broke up with and now wants to take revenge on her. And she's so traumatised by her having acted on that impulse that it's made her have a breakdown and imagine a whole different set of things, right? And it's imagined, uh, you know... and it actually shows you a murder and it shows you a car crash and you flip around and go, actually, those events happened in a different way. But because she's just so traumatized by her part in it, she's playing it back to herself in a different way. But at the end, those main pieces fall together. Those main pieces fall together to say, ah, actually, this is what happened. She did this, she did that. But also there's a lot of things that don't follow that don't make sense it's like that thing you said in the in in real one about paprika is that you can't expect all of it to make sense because your dreams don't make sense yeah yeah and i think with mulholland drive if you kind of cling on by your fingertips you go oh that's what's going on but then you would go back and go okay well hold on who was having that hallucination because that was a different guy that's not naomi what's his character that's someone else is she imagining that or are other people you know doing that and sometimes that's the director just trying to disorient you to try and give you the feeling. And sometimes that's the director saying, and, and David Lynch has said very clearly about this film, I know what exactly what's going on in this movie. I'm just not going to tell you. Because I want you to be in the position of the person who is struggling and disoriented. And and, and I want you to kind of kind of clear your way through. And, and then at the end, I think at the end of Mulholland Drive, you get a sense of what's going on. But I think you many, many repeated viewings are required to get everything. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, I mean, if there's a point to it, then if you're saying that you're wanting the audience to see it from this kind of person's perspective, like an amnesiac, then that's mm-hmm. fine. But don't just throw an incoherent plot at me. I mean, I've I've, I've picked up a list just there of all the um, what the most confusing films of all time are, and number one, two, and I think three. No, one, one and two were Christopher Nolan films. Inception is number one, which I don't understand. It's really not that hard. <laughs> Tenet, I understand, because there was no point to Tenet. Tenet was shit. There wasn't any 
Yeah, Tenet was literally a film that Christopher Nolan and his six friends could understand and watch. I mean, um, I, I absolutely love Tenet, and there is a there is a, a bonus episode uh, back in our, our catalogue of us talking through why I love it and, and, and James doesn't. But I, I think the thing with, with Nolan is he's he's a very lucid director. Like I say, Inception is... It's not like... Um, uh, City of Lost Children, where like things melt into each other, and it doesn't actually—it's not actually very clear. It's very clear they're in a dream. At the end of it, you go, "Ah, oh, but is Leonardo DiCaprio dreaming?" It's actually all quite clear. So when he does Tenet, he's—he's—that's just the way he does things. What he films is very realistic and very clear. And in Tenet, he's going, "But I'm—I'm I'm making because of the the time dilation thing that there is a lot of strangeness." But he's a person who who seeks to explain. And I think that pisses. I mean, that didn't work for you, did it? It's he's just that. Um... No, what didn't work with it, sorry, is that he can do confusing films. So I understand the concept of Inception is quite confusing, right? They're in dreams now, and because you're in a dream, you can basically control it. And it's like different people in those dreams do different things. That's a. That's not like I'm not expecting someone to get that right away, but. Tenet wasn't that at all. Tenet was just like, oh, time is going this way, time is going that way. Is that explained? Uh, no. Like, the point of Inception was that there is this technology that everyone can share the, a dream with someone and try and plant an idea in their head. Try and tell me the fucking point of Tenet. Stop World War Three. Okay, how? By going forwards and backwards in time at the same time. That It's, ridic- it's ridiculous. It, and I understand why people find that confusing. And it pisses me off that Nolan knows that he can do better because he did better with Interstellar. The point of Interstellar was that we've got to save Earth, so we have to travel through the universe through a wormhole and use data and information from a black hole. Turns out the black hole is the way that we communicate back in Earth to save it. That's That seems like it's confusing, but it's actually very linear. It's it's a straight line. You go into the wormhole, through the wormhole, into the black hole, send all the information back up. That is a straight line. Tenet isn't anything. Tenet's a spider's web of nonsense. There's a there's a fundamental concept in Tenet that you have to either buy into or not. And I think I I'd I'd, I'd recommend you go and uh, and any listener who wants to relitigate this go go back over our bonus episode of Tenet because I think James perfectly encapsulates the argument of of why that isn't good. And I'd like to think I give a decent kind of stab as to as to why it is, and I think it, that that film just divides people. But but I mean, sorry, look, you, sorry, you, sorry. The problem with it is that there are there are scenes in it where obviously there are things going backwards in time and things going forward in time, and that is cool to look at. There are sequences where you don't know if this car is going to crash into you, or if you're going to crash into this car, or the character is because of the way that they're going backwards and forwards in time. But there's no there's no foundations as to why this is happening and why this is so confusing you can't hear the entire film the entire film is like this brace yourselves <laughs> and basically the main character is going yeah do you want to go get a coffee like that's that's the problem with that film so with a film like that you need to have a lot of exposition and sometimes that's annoying in films but in inception it's very clear leonardo dicaprio says yeah i i basically do heists in people's brains through their dreams tenet does none of that at all you're basically just expected to go, oh yeah, cool, this is fine. What is it? In other Nolan films, Interstellar's where he kind of started to stop doing that and just said, right, this is the idea I want to roll with and you just have to fucking suck it up whether you like it or not. But some of his best films, like The Prestige, people find The Prestige quite confusing. But I think that's one of his best films because it's that easy to follow. Uh, and, it shows... And, 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 it shows and I, think, I think that's sorry. what it, Sorry, mate, go ahead. It shows one magician, Hugh Jackman, who is absolutely 
you know, who will go and find Nikola Tesla to help him clone himself to try and compete with Christian Bale's trick. And it's the whole point of Hugh Jackman is like using mind bending scientific technology and breakthroughs to do his magic tricks. And Christian Bale has a twin brother. It goes from the crazy, um, obsessive nature of Hugh Jackman's character to use all of this technology and contrast that with Christian Bale's character who it's as simple as he has an identical twin brother that's what's great about that film and it's so easy to follow whereas if you're going to have an idea which uh, the, the idea of Tenet is really fucking cool that we can have these people going backwards and forwards in time and it's it's trying to like stop the end of the world and all that kind of stuff. That's cool, but you have to lay foundations and having everyone wear fucking gas masks covering their face and nose and not be like not being able to hear that properly is just the he, yeah, primary he, flaw of that film. He, he did he did take it right to the limit there, and I think he's just you know I, I've I've got a feeling that Oppenheimer Oppenheimer is going to be him going back to a lot more straightforward kind of narrative well, hopefully it? that won't be mind-bending that'll just be him telling an excellent story i, th- but, I think i think where he could be mind-bending is, is the idea of splitting the atom and the consequences of splitting the atom and how that affects oppenheimer he could he could do that dramatically you could, in a show, number of ways. you could show that if you're going to use effects for that and it's like it's like a cool visual like the visuals you had in interstellar i don't have problems with that if it's a good visual experience but it looked kind of mind-bending that's fine but you, you can't really do that with oppenheimer you can't really um have him running up walls to drop the atom bomb on Nagasaki. No, no, no. You know no, what I mean? It's, like, it's not. It's not going to play out like an action film. I don't think. Listen to some of these confusing films that I don't understand why they're they're here. I understand why Tenet's here and Interstellar and Donnie Darko, but there's films here that I think these are really easy to follow. The Prestige, nah, straightforward. The Matrix is that quite confusing? Uh, no, it's completely straightforward. It's a case of that we're actually living in a simulation. That's quite yeah, yeah. Straightforward, and that's not even a spoiler. They tell you that at the start of the film. Um, Looper didn't find Looper that hard to follow, did no. you? No, I mean the thing with Looper is that, like all films that involve time travel, there are things that don't make sense because time travel doesn't make sense. And I think Tenet sort of took that to to an extreme. And I think if if we come down to it, Tenet takes things to an extreme that some people will will, will simply not not go with. And like I said on the uh, on, on the, the, the pod we did about this. I can't criticise anyone for not buying into Tenet. I just loved what he did, and I loved the central premise of it and the way it played out, but I know a lot of people didn't, and I think there are clear reasons for that. The the, the extent to which he made it difficult to follow, I can see. I can see why that would bother people. So we'll come back to like a film director who's probably shared, you know, probably David Lynch has a lineage with. But I wanted to I wanted to go to a couple of films that I think contrast. They're both mind bending films in their own way. But one is, I think, one's clearer than the other in the in the plot of the film, if you see what I mean. But they both essentially express if you actually say what it's about, it's not straightforward what it's about and but that it's the same director doing two things slightly different way it's get out and us so we're both big fans of get out right james yeah now how would you summarize get out as a as what's going on in the story so get out is starts with um a black guy who's in a relationship with a white woman meeting her folks for the first time 
um, and her folks are a, a white family, and um, they live in the sticks somewhere. They live in a, a house of, out in the countryside, you know, maybe a good hour and a half away from the city. And he goes there, and something's just not quite right. They've got um, a groundskeeper who's black, but seems like he's got something wrong with him. And then they've got a, a housekeeper who is also black, um, makes all the food and does all the cleaning. And she seems like she's got something wrong with them. But it's at that kind of point in the film, you kind of think, oh, maybe they're just a couple of like oddballs who they've, you know, hired because, you know, it's hard for the, those people are a bit odd to get yeah. um, jobs. You know what I mean? And as the film kind of progresses, the, the, the girl's mum, um, is practices hypnosis. Um, but the guy's character, what's his name? Is it Chris? remember now daniel daniel kalua, kalua. Yeah. daniel kalua's character smokes he gets hypnotized by the mum um and gets put into this thing called the sunken place where he basically can't move and he's falling and he feels like he's like screaming but can't make any noise and the next day he wants to stop smoking um and the next i think a couple of days later they have a barbecue it's like this is actually really easy for i'm just giving you the plot it's really easy for basically the parents get the daughter to have get black boyfriends and then uh, they take the brain out of a dying or ill white relative or white person put that brain in there and the white person lives on through um the black the black body basically and they're using it because black people are seen as fashionable and like they're the the in thing and there's a guy that goes missing and then daniel kalua sees him at this party and he's wearing like a a a summer hat and he's wearing like a beige suit and he just looks out of character because he's basically from you know the, the the hood He's like a kind of hoodlum and now he's, you know, looks like he's a way to play croquet. So the whole plot of that is, is that they're, that's like sort of futuristic where they can transfer, the brain transplants are now a thing. And you have like white people bidding. You're like the, there's one guy who's bidding on um, Daniel Kalua because he's um, he's blind and he wants to, you know. He wants to be able um, to see again. He wants to see through Daniel Kalua's eyes because Daniel Kalua is actually a talented photographer in this film. Yeah. yeah. And... It basically just ends with Daniel Kaluuya manages to uh, he stuffs his ears full of um, sofa stuffing, puts it in his ears. He can't be hypnotized, and he just kills everyone. Kills all the white people. It's fucking incredible. He kills a he kills a man with uh, the antlers off of a, uh, a a deer that's been mounted on the wall. He kills someone with like a snooker ball or something like that. Yeah, and then I'm pretty sure he shoots his girlfriend with a shotgun. Yeah, um, and then at the end of it. This is the best bit about this film is that he's done all of that. He survived. He's like the first black guy to survive this fucking ordeal, and he, um, you see these uh, blue and red lights flashing. And you think, oh fuck, they're gonna see a black guy who's just shot, um, shot his girlfriend and then killed uh, the mum, the dad, and all all the other folk. Yeah, he's doomed. And you think, oh shit! Turns out it's his pal who works in the airport security who's driven up to come and save him. Yeah. And it's that just that that kind of moment of oh fuck, he's done all of that, but he's not going to get fucking bummed up the arse by the American system anyway. Mm. People found that film confusing. Yeah, the thing is, what what's what's brilliant about this? I mean, I think it's a mind bending film that's quite clear. The storyline is quite clear, and I think it's um it's a horror movie. Jordan Peele does horror movies, and the lineage of of Get Out, it goes back to something like. Texas Chainsaw Massacre or Halloween or anything like that where the the greatest fear of the audience or the greatest fear for society at the time is sort of manifest by the monster in the movie. I mean, Halloween came out in the late 70s, which was kind of the absolute heyday of the American serial killer. The idea that some um, you know unidentifiable killer 
you cannot explain why they're going to kill you, but they are, and they're stalking you, and there's some sort of psychosis is making them kill you. They're going to find you, and they're going to kill you. There's no explanation. Do you know what I mean? It's no one you know. It's no one you pissed off. It's no one you can identify with the police. They're just going to come and kill you. That was that was happening for real in America. It was a real fear that you would walk down the street and you didn't know who was going to be around the corner. And that's why Halloween was the horror movie for that time. Now, for Get Out, Get Out is made in the 21st century by a black film director. What's black people's greatest fear? White people. Yeah. It's perfect. It, it's perfect, and it, it works like a Swiss watch. I think it's a, it's a less difficult, it's a less easy question to answer, in my opinion, is to say, wider than that, what is Get Out about? What is it trying to say about, you know, racism? What is it trying to say about liberal white Americans who like black people and, and whether they're completely sincere or whether whether they are entirely good for black people. It's it's the, the allegory, it, it works perfectly within the movie because it's an absolutely rock-solid Swiss watch of a plot, yeah? From beginning to end, you go, yeah, that works. Absolutely works. For the, the wider theme of the movie, I don't think that's as easy to pin down. And if you ask Jordan Peele, it's like, well... Is he literally saying that that white liberals who hate racism and, and, and voted for Obama and really liked him are using black people for their own purposes, are consuming? Is it about cultural appropriation? Is it about white people, you know, consuming black culture? Is it about all these white kids who listen to hip hop? I don't think it's that clear whether some or all of those themes are what Jordan Peele's trying to say. I don't think it has to be either. But do you know what I mean? What I'm trying to get to on that, I don't know if you agree on it, but what I'm trying to get to on that is that the, the underlying theme of the film is not as clear as the storyline. Do you see what I mean? Yeah. No, but yeah, there's there's a real apparent amount of clarity there. Like that's it's distinct how easy that is to follow and understand. Yeah. So the um, the, the, the storyline of the film is completely, completely, completely clear. It is a it's nightmarish and it's freaky and it's mind bending in the in the style of the films that we're talking about in this film. Because when he when he goes into the sunken place when he's being hypnotized and he falls through, that's beautifully done and all of that stuff. At the end, though, within the confines of the story, it is very, 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 very clear what's going on. If but when you then step back and go, okay, what's this film about? More broadly, less clear. And I, I think on that, right, that the themes of his next film, Us, the wider themes, are, I, in some ways are a little bit clearer. What the film's actually about in a wider sense is a little bit clearer in Us. But what it's what the movie's about, the storyline, the plotline of the film, I think is a lot less clear. It's a lot less easy, easy to understand. Do you see what I mean? Yeah, no, I... Yeah, I think if, if we're talking about the two films... Talking about Get Out and Us, Us is a little bit harder to follow. I didn't like it as much, but not because it wasn't that hard to follow, but because it was a bit of a. I just didn't like the kind of plot of it. I didn't. It's, I think it was a bit. I think it was weaker than Get it's, Out. It's, it's That's a, quite it's obvious. A, it's a much less focused plot. I mean, it, you find yourself asking questions. You're like, hold on, is this happening everywhere? How can they just live underground? And and do you know what I mean? It's like, is this a? Was this the result of an experiment? Do, do you know what I mean? Because it's. I'll give you an example. If the guys who did City of Lost Children made that movie, I think they would make the relationship between the underground people and the above ground people a bit more dreamy. And that when they start when they start to collide, it would be a bit less kind of you know it would just go whatever. But there are bits where you go, so they're just hanging around underground. I don't get it. Do you know what I mean? And it, that that bit doesn't work as well as Get Out. I think it's more ambitious in what it's trying to say. I think it's not just about race; it's about imposter syndrome. 
you know you that, that nagging feeling that you know you, you've kind of you know you've you've almost got where you've got to by blind luck and it, luck and it can be taken away from any second it's also about the fact that in american society for every person who's doing well there's a person who's doing badly you know and but i think the way the film plays out it's much less the storyline has, has a lot less clarity to it doesn't it yeah yeah i don't know i don't i didn't just i didn't really like that film i didn't think lupita nyong'o was very strong in it and i didn't think i forget his name is it winston duke mm. i didn't think he i don't think they were two strong enough leads for that film but you can't just cast daniel kalua in every uh jordan peele film uh, yeah. but for me that film was just a bit weak i think it was a bit i don't know it just wasn't i think the problem is that it wasn't get out that's the problem. I think that's the problem people are having with Thor: Love and Thunder is that it's not Thor Ragnarok. It's that kind of thing. Mm. The film is following a you know a top class film in Get Out. Um, yeah, and the thing is, in in any event, if you, I would certainly say that the storyline of us is is a lot more ambitious than Get Out because Get Out is very very well done, but it's 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 an entirely self contained storyline. It happens in one place. It has a single given premise, but then in us, it's like these people are kind of facsimiles of you of some sort of brutal kind who've come to kill you but then they start to explain why because someone's led a rebellion because again spoiler alert Lupita Nyong'o's character was swapped and that awareness that awareness that she's had something taken away from her and that someone else is living the life that she should have has led her to fight back again I can see the allegory do you know what I mean but I think when you get to the end you go they've kind of tried he's trying to say a lot more he's trying to cover a lot more and I love the ambition it just doesn't work as again. Get out is absolutely. It just hits every step beautifully, absolutely spot on. Whereas, whereas us is trying to do more, and I think it's got some brilliant bits in it. It doesn't hold together. On the other hand, it's. Uh, I kind of, again, I'm I'm, I'm paraphrasing Mark Kermode. So he'd, he'd much rather someone try something really difficult, really really unusual, and really interesting this time, and not completely succeed. Than just do the same thing over and over again. Yeah, you know, if he if he just did another film that was just like Get Out, you might be going, ah, oh, well, you know, he's playing a bit too safe here. Do you know what I mean? Um, but it it is interesting that the I think what it says is that there's there's a very very tightrope balance that you've got to keep when you're te- when you're telling a story that on the face of it doesn't make sense. Because that's the issue with us, is that a lot of what's going on in us doesn't make sense. Yeah. Get out, as long as you believe the central scientific premise that, that they're pretending ha- is happening in the film. Yeah, br- brain, people swapping brains into bodies. That's happened a million times in movies. It's a classic horror movie yeah. idea. It makes complete sense. You only have to kind of follow one thing and then the rest of it follows. So I think what it says is that people who are, people who try and be more kind of weird than that are... Um, they have a harder job to do because, like you say, you can very easily be. Actually, you made it. You made a film that doesn't work, and you're just trying to say people didn't get it. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah it's like the Emperor's New Clothes. I mean, people find it a lot easier. I mean, I, I you know, I, I, I suggested before we did this pod that we talk about the Truman Show because that's another example of a film where it's actually quite clear what's going on. It's the atmosphere that's unsettling. It's the idea that you can't actually trust reality. Do you know what I mean? But at the beginning of the film, it explains exactly what's going on. Truman is living in a, in a reality show. He just doesn't know it. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. But then what he does is he shows you the whole film. Peter Weir shows you the whole film from, from, from Truman's angle and shows you the, 
is that a camera? Why are they acting different? Why can't I travel? Do you know what I mean? <laughs> and it's kind of the, but I, I think what it, what it's trying to do is say, imagine you, imagine you were starting to doubt your own reality. I think that's why the tr- that, that's yeah. why Truman Show has that unsettling element to it. Yeah, and but that, again, the, I think what I like about that film, just to kind of touch on it, is that it's not too difficult to follow. I'm mm. all for confusing films, but it's how you do them. And the Truman Show has done well. I think it's good that they got Jim Carrey as the lead for that. I think he was actually perfect for that role because mm-hmm. he's he's kind of that guy who's very expressive, and you'd be quite expressive when you were finding out that you're lives an entire reality show but um yeah i mean that's the whole point of films films are meant to have new and fresh ideas because you know but nobody wants a, a film about you know a week in the life of the adamsons where you know i'll you know i'll, I'll go to, i go to work i come home i make sure the dogs had a shit and been fed and watered you know what i mean nobody wants that that's the whole point of films they're meant to be fresh ideas so what happens with that is that we push the boundaries we push the boundaries we go beyond you, star you, wars you, and we go beyond marvel and we go beyond these films we get we get past those and then you have to push limits and that's what happens but when you push the limits you get you get beyond get out and you get us and us doesn't work so maybe you tone it down a little bit for nope do you know what i mean do you know what i'm trying to say you yeah. have to push these limits to try and have new films and when you do that you know you might have to have films that have got proper mind-bending ideas because you're trying to make a film from my perspective if i was wanting to make a film i'd want to make a film where nobody's seen that idea before you know we've we've got a couple like spoiler we've been like make we've been working on a couple of scripts from ideas that we've kind of come up with together and you know we feel that those films aren't films that anyone's ever seen before do you know what i mean do you get what we're trying to say they they fit into certain genres and they fit into certain you know things you've you might have like seen before in that kind of style of movie but what we've written there is that i've gone right i want to do this film which is something we've seen before but in a place that we've never seen before or it's a style of film but it's got a different you know age of a lead you know i mean it's a different it's a is a younger lead as an older lead kind of thing so with that you can fall into the risk of having a and you can have incoherentness is that a word incoherence i think incoherence yeah i'm a fucking idiot so you can have that you can have that you can fall into that trap where the film can go from you know things we've seen before get a bit boring yeah so it was it's kind of like chinese food you have it wasn't exceptional but you know it it did its job but if you want to do that you have to start having like fresh fresh ideas and that's when things can get confusing so you have to make sure that it's watertight and don't just make it confusing because nobody's seen it before think oh well nobody's seen an actor uh do this or nobody's seen a scene that looks like that you know, you have to have yeah. coherence. So that's what I respect about things like Tenet and Mulholland Drive and things like that, because they are pushing the boundary and sometimes they land, sometimes they don't, but the ideas are fresh. You just have to make sure that you don't just have an idea and go, oh, well, I'm putting the idea on screen, but I'm not actually doing anything to make sure that it's, you know, polished, if that makes sense. Sorry, that was a bit of a rant there. No, no, no. But I mean, it's it's really interesting what you say. But I think I think it's a case of I, everyone draws the line in a different place. I think is what I'd say because you've you listed those yeah. films. So you go, a lot of people went that was mind bending. It didn't make sense. And you went Prestige, Inception. These films are completely clear. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. And and I think there's different things that now. I'm going to make an argument here for a film because I, I think I probably have a greater tolerance for being confused and disoriented by a film than you do. 
Um, but like I say, there are other people who probably have a much greater tolerance for it than I do. Do you know what I mean? It's like everyone thinks they're open-minded. Everyone thinks they they they, they can take a joke. Everyone thinks they're, you know, uh, relaxed about stuff. But there'll, there'll always be something that's that crosses the line for you. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Um, the, the argument I think people will make is that every film is a constructed reality. Yeah. Yeah. Because you know, especially you know, we've talked about like Paprika, which is an anime. You literally have to draw everything that's in that film in Paprika by hand, right? But even in a in a CGI, you know, through the animation, you don't just point the camera at some things and they happen to be animated. Someone had to physically draw that thing there, that sign there, that color, that everything else, right? And um, people like Scorsese, any film director that we like, Tarantino is another good example. Everything is in that for a reason. Now, that's not always the case. They happen to be kind of just shooting the street. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? It's like they just happen to be catching New York and there's a lot of stuff happening. However, right, we talked about David Fincher in a previous big conversation. He overlays different colors over the camera to change what colors the film looks like. This film is very gray. This film is very blue. It's very dark. The fact that you shoot every scene at night is different. The fact that you edit things a certain way is different. The fact that you take a character and make him sympathetic, where other people might see that character as unsympathetic, yeah, no, I, yeah. it's entirely constructed by the people making the movie. And surrealism, which is where David Lynch comes from, and I'm going to kind of talk about a, a film director now who's probably the, the, the ultimate surrealist. He's basically saying, the other flip side to this is, all reality is perceived, Okay. Because you are looking at reality with your eyes, and then we're getting into a philosophical argument. Because the fact is, we all kind of have, we're not we're not going to get through our lives if we don't accept that what's happening in front of us. You know, the wall I'm touching is solid. Maybe it is, maybe it isn't. Because we could all be we could all be living in a simulation. But the fact is, you know, you and I can can agree some objective things. Like say, it's cold today. Yes, it is. It's hot today. Yes, it is. We both agree that. But we're all still perceiving reality differently. We're all watching a film ourselves and reacting to it individually so all reality that you that you see in a film is constructed and all reality that you see inside and outside a film depends on perception right someone has to see it and the way they see it is going to differ yeah and i'm going to talk about a guy called louis bunuel he's a surrealist he started making films in the 30s he probably finished up in about the 70s he was a contemporary of salvador dali his first film was a short film uh that's you know famously um, sort of shocked people at the time because it looked like someone was having their eyelids slit open. Uh, and, you know, a film like that in 1930 is going to totally kind of freak people out, right? Um, and that film that he did on Sean Andalou, which means an Andalusian dog, um, it was entirely impressionistic. It was a series of dreams. Dali and Bunuel sat down and said, I have this recurring dream where like my eyeball gets cut open or I have this dream where this happens and that happens. They just filmed all their dreams because dreams... All right, dreams aren't real, but they feel real while they're happening, right? Yeah. The things those dreams make you feel are very, very real. I mean, I remember, you know, obviously for those who haven't worked it out yet, I'm James's father. I had I had this nightmare when just once it was just not recurring. I had this nightmare once that you'd been stolen, and I spent years looking for you. Right. And you wake up from that dream in an absolute physical, emotional state. Do you know what I mean? Because for however many minutes it was in REM sleep. It felt like years that I'd had my baby son taken away from me, and I was desperately trying to find him. That the what I felt about what I saw was very real. 
it wasn't real. You were sleeping in the next room very happily, right? But dreams feel real while they're happening. And dreams often express something that's going on in your mind, what you're worried about, what you're concerned about. Some people like to play with that. Dreams that tell the future, dreams that come true, people who, you know, who interpret dreams and explain what's going on. And Louis Bunuel is one of the most dreamlike filmmakers. He's a real surrealist. Um, and he had this uh, film, which I'm just going to remember, it's The Exterminating Angel. And this was a much more... Uh, much more of a narrative film than his initial his early shorts but what it is it's the idea is that people are it's like middle class people who turn up to a dinner party and nobody's there or then they're there and then the food's not there and it's just it constantly kind of it's a group of people who can't go and do what they would normally do and I'm I'm not explaining it very well but the idea behind the exterminating angel is that it's it's that dream that you have where you can't get going, you can't get started, or something that you're worried about is constantly being taken away from you. And it uh, it has a sort of central um, logic to it that, you know, this is happening. They're unable to leave this dinner party, yeah? And they start to turn on each other and everything they try doesn't work and it doesn't make any sense that they can't leave. Now, if that was really happening, that would be really weird. But if you dreamed that you were you were somewhere and you couldn't leave and everything you did didn't work and if you opened the door, everything turned around and you realised that you hadn't leave, that's classic dream logic. And it's he's, he's using that to express... Um, he was being satirical about society. He was actually saying that if you, if you sort of... If you trapped the aristocracy the way we are trapped, they would turn savage and turn into the kind of like, you know unsavory characters they claim that we are right so there's a logic underlying it and you can either watch the film and go it's about a surreal world in which you can't leave and everyone turns on each other or um, you can see the satirical intent behind it and what it's trying to say about society and he took this to the next level with a film called uh, The Discreet Charm of the Bourgeoisie where there's a series of characters and throughout the film he kind of builds on that idea of a dinner party that has some kind of strange quirks to it where they try and meet for dinner at someone's house but they've got the wrong day. So they try and arrange it again and when they get there there's they um, the people have, have run off for some reason because they think it's people who've come to arrest them. Why are people coming to arrest them? Because they're crooked. They're rich but they're crooked on the side, right? Um, they turn up, they try, try and go and have dinner at a restaurant but they've got no food and they keep asking for food and they can't do it and then when they turn around actually... The, um, the, the, the proprietor of the restaurant has just died and actually the whole thing turns into a funeral. Another dinner party turns into a stage play and they're stuck on stage and can't remember their lines. And each one of these things is like kind of, uh, they're like dreams or they're dreaming that they can't do it. And then other people start talking about their dreams, dreaming about being dead or everyone they love being dead. Um, they have a dream where the military turns up on manoeuvres and they sit down and have dinner with them and then the manoeuvres start going off all around them. And it's there's an allegorical intent about how the rich people have got the army working for them, they're committing crimes and getting away with it. But also, you learn a lot about these people by what they're dreaming. There's an ambassador from a corrupt country who is essentially dreaming that he's going to be killed by revolutionaries. Why? Because he fucking deserves to be. Do you know what I mean? These other yeah. people dream that they're going to be arrested because they've committed crimes. And they dream about all of these things. And what it's saying is, is that dreams aren't real, but dreams tell you a lot about people. Yeah. 
So you have to follow weird stuff. There's like uh, dreams of death. There's ghosts. There's people betraying each other. They're having affairs with each other. They're constantly fearfully being killed by the rabble. And it's simply a case of, at the end of that film, you can't really say what what that I watched was real and what that I watched actually happened. But it doesn't matter because you're not you're not meant to know at the end of it what's real and what isn't in, in the story that you saw because some of what you saw was that person's dream and some of what you saw was what that person did in real life. But all of what you saw tells you what those people are really like and tells you what the upper class establishment of France at the time are like. So he is his films are totally weird but with a very, very, very clear social commentary to them. And they're amazing to watch because he was an incredibly skilled director um, outside of filmmaking, Bunuel was a hypnotist. He was capable of hypnotizing people. And essentially, his films are trying to hypnotize his audience and elicit a sort of trance-like state. His last film is one that I really like. It's called The Phantom of Liberty. And I'm just going to talk about one scene in it because this is where he uses his kind of surrealist ideas to just kind of show the absurdity of society. The idea is, is that, look, you need to eat because you're hungry and that's natural and that's normal, Yeah. But that is something that you do in public, in restaurants. There are TV shows about it. It's cultural. Do you know what I mean? Yeah? You also need to go to the toilet. It's natural. It's a byproduct of eating. There's nothing you can do about it. We all do it. It's nothing to be ashamed of. But it's a taboo. You're not supposed to talk about it. You're not supposed to say what you're doing. And you, you would go and hide in a room, in a secret room, and do it. And you don't tell people about it. Do you know what I mean? You're embarrassed about that bodily function. Do you know what I mean? If you're... If your digestive system up top isn't working and you're having trouble, you're having indigestion, you can talk about your indigestion. If anything's happening down below going to the toilet, that's a much more shameful thing to talk about. And this one says, well, what if that was reversed? What if people went to toilet parties and if they needed to eat, they would whisper and not talk about it out loud and tell the kids not to say out loud that I'm hungry because that's a rude thing to say. And they would go into a quiet, silent room and eat by themselves and they just reverse it. And one thing is social and cultural. And the other thing isn't. And it's really weird watching it, but it's like he's just trying to he's he's trying to shine a light on society. He's holding up a mirror to you, but it's a distorted mirror. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Okay. No, I've I've never heard of this guy, so it feels like yeah, you're giving him a good uh He's you know, he's he's a defi- good describing. He's Sorry. definitely the inheritor to um to Lynch, because David Lynch did a razor head, which is just a collection of strange dreams. You know, there's a there's a there's a weird baby that essentially Danny Boyle borrowed the baby from uh, um, train spotting from it. And there's, right. a, you know, there's trees, heads, heads falling apart. People are all acting weird. Blue Velvet is quite surreal. It's about, you know, the dark underbelly of small town America, Twin Peaks, a lot of weird, unexplainable things happen. And again, David Lynch will say, I know what's happening. I don't want you to know what's happening. I want you to feel how weird this is. I want you to feel like everything's weird and you don't know what's going on and strange and inexplicable things are happening. And the question is, I think I don't think you'd like David Lynch that much because he doesn't explain it at the end. Right. You sort of work out what's going on at the end. Um, in Twin Peaks, you, with Twin Peaks, you just go, all right, there's actually some strange shit going on. But a lot of what David Lynch does is he has people playing dual roles. Like he'll have a, a character playing one person and playing another person because essentially he says, we've all got cr- cracked like psychology. We're all like, you know, we're all two people in some sense. But he just, he just says, You're, I'm, he says, if you don't like it, I don't mind. He's a very mild-mannered guy. He doesn't get upset. People don't like his films. And what he just says is, this is going to be weird, guys. <laughs> and you're just going to have to go with it. Deal with it, basically, yeah. Yeah. 
But I think I mean, what they're all trying to do, right, in all different ways, is that they're trying to have an effect on the audience. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. And, you know, the, the whole thing about Interstellar, the reason, you know, again, there's a lot of people who think that stuff with the, li- the, the library or the bookshelf is so weird in Interstellar. And I think, again, in, in classic Nolan style, it's very, very clear what's going on. The humans from the future have created uh, like a, 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 a space in, in sort of fifth dimension, fifth dimensional space. They've created an area that someone less advanced than them, like Matthew McConaughey, will understand, yeah, so that he can a- apply the laws of physics and send a message back home, right? Yeah. But while it's happening, it's totally freaking, totally weird. And the whole point is Matthew McConaughey doesn't go, it's all right, everyone. I know what's happening. I remember my Kip Thorne. I've read my, you know, I've read my Stephen Hawking, so I know what's going on here. This is that theory in fifth dimensional space that actually time dilates and two bits of time and space can actually be right next door to each other. So now I get it. This is just me visualizing so that I can send a message back the same way the people from the future did. No, he's going, shit, I've got to get a message to my daughter. I can see her. Do you know what I mean? And at, at that moment, Nolan wants you to feel it. Just like Kubrick wants you to feel it when... Bowman goes through the Stargate in 2001. He wants you to feel it. There's an explanation, but he wants you to be... He doesn't want... Because again, I think why Shutter Island is not a classic film is that after you've watched it once, you go, oh yeah, that's what's happening. And it doesn't doesn't get you in your gut. Do you know what I mean? And no, Nolan and Kubrick, yeah. and Nolan and Kubrick, who ironically are often seen as not the most emotional of directors, they actually want you to feel weird. They actually want you to, after watching Inception, they want you to go, oh, wow. The next time you have a dream, go, I wonder why I'm having this dream. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Like Blade Runner, he, you know, Ridley Scott wants you to think, well, how many of your memories do you really remember? Or, or are you just dreaming something because you saw it on TV? Do you know what I mean? No. Yeah, no, I get it's it. Like it's like that whole thing is... That, that, because film directors, filmmakers, and writers, they're... They, they feel something, they see something, they think something. They can never quite get it completely out of their head into yours. But if they can make you feel something like what they felt, in however weird it looks, they're trying to, they're trying to reach right straight into your, your nervous system. And that's why you make a film and not a documentary. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, no, I, I agree. So, so really, it's about, it's, it's about how much weirdness you're prepared to accept. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, and done properly like all films should be done properly well that's the thing i think i think the cinematic uh like values of david lynch are amazing the cinematography the acting the scenes you know he actually what he did with the script of Mulholland driver says each one of these scenes actually makes sense for what it is i've just taken away the key right and each scene is brilliantly done each shot is beautifully composed the, the films are very well made same with Bunuel. Nolan, no one could say Nolan hasn't got the skills of a filmmaker. Do you know what I mean? So it's really about, um, you know, mind, you know, mind altering, you know, you know, films. And that's why I just wanted to explore it this one, because to one extent or another, directors are always trying to be a bit mind bending. And I just, I, th- I thought it'd be interesting to look into some of the people who've really pushed the envelope. Do you know what I mean? Uh, yeah. It's no, it's been a good one. It's are there nice... any other are there any other films that you you want to throw in there that kind of you know work for you or any other areas you'd like to explore on that, mate? No, I think I think we've given it a good a good outing. 
Okay, brilliant. So that's our that's our big conversation for this month. This is one where we've explored like a, a general theme across all the features. We won't do that every time, but I think sometimes again we will. I think we will we will probably come back to films that you know all have some similar you know uniting aspect to them in conversations that all do. Uh, but for now, that's the end of our big conversation, and thank you very much for joining us. That's all for this month's episode of Double Reel. Thanks for listening and for making it all the way to the end. Thanks also to my co-host, James Adamson. The podcast was edited in Audacity and hosted on Anchor FM. We are grateful for their continued support. The music was Mistake the Getaway by Kevin MacLeod. Existence is available on disc, but is cheaper to buy on digital copy at Amazon or Apple TV. Concept art and sample script pages for Vincenzo Natale's Neuromancer can be found at heavymetal.com, or you can read the book. Outside of Double Reel, you can find us both hosting a non-film-related podcast, The Adamson's Verses. Our latest episode the Adamsons vs. the Combat Dolphins is out now. So this is me, James Adamson, signing off, and... This is me, James Adamson, signing off. Our next episode will be our regular episode 28 next month. Keep an eye out for any special episodes we decide to do in future. If you enjoyed this podcast, please like and subscribe and tell your friends. Until next time, stay safe, watch lots of films, and may your life be as awesome as you pretend it is on social media. And don't fucking take your dog in the car in this fucking heat, you stupid cunt. That was a public information film from the Adamsons. <laughs> Anything else for you to add to the roundup, mate? Um. Oh yeah, Tim Westwood's a cunt. Sorry, <laughs> I, that in there. I thought that might have been your sign-off for this episode. Uh, yeah, yeah shit. <laughs> <laughs> you can always edit it out if you want. <laughs>